Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. For today, we will be continuing with our fixed income conversation as we will talk about some recent activity we're witnessing within Treasury yields as well as where opportunities exist across the high yield space, highlighting the recent fixed income strategist publication from the UBS Chief Investment Office. So on today's podcast, we're fortunate to have with us Leslie Falconio, Head of Taxable Fixed Income strategy for the Americas, as well as Alina Gallant, senior fixed income strategist for the Americas from the UBS Chief Investment Office. Leslie, Alina, good morning and thank you for joining our listeners and clients. Welcome back. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So uh, before we get into high yield, I know that's the focus of this month's publication, which Alina will weigh on a bit later in the conversation. I do have to acknowledge, Leslie, how investors have taken notice of the sharp rise of long-term treasury yields, most notably over the past month. Can you speak a bit to the factors that have contributed to the move? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's hard not to take notice of the sharp rise in treasury yields that we've had. And and it's amazing when we think about in July, we were sitting in mid-July, we were sitting at a 372 10-year yield, especially all the way up to, you know, high of around 488, 489 right before the payroll. And it looks like we're, we might be heading back there this morning. You know, there's been a couple of, of contributions that have led to the rise in interest rates. And, you know, let's just, just start with that. The, the most basic and really the most important is that, you know, when you look at things like third quarter growth, um, the expectation coming into the third quarter that it would likely be, you know, probably below trend, which is 1.8, 1.9 percent of GDP, and it's actually, you know, as we've seen, although we haven't got the actual number yet, the expectation is it can come in, you know, in the threes. So, the resiliency of the consumer, the resiliency of corporations in terms of of earnings of the S and P has really, um, you know, been a tailwind to this economy, and therefore rates have moved higher. Now, one of the other aspects of the move higher in, in rates besides just the strength in the consumer that we've seen um, is the fact that, you know, during the FOMC meeting in September, the Fed really shifted its outlook quite dramatically. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we think about the summary of economic projections that was in June, the Fed had taken a recession off the table, but they had still maintained 100 basis points of easing in 2024. And the market really expected that easing to occur in 2024. Now, when when it came to the September uh, summary of economic projections, not only did they increase their growth rate and lower their unemployment forecast, but they moved that 100 basis points of easing down to 50. So the market had to readjust to that outlook, which actually is, is was fairly dramatic. Now, that was part of the tailwind to that rise in rates, just a simple shift in sentiment, and that was that's really what got the ball rolling. Now, since that time, we've seen a lot of those behind-the-curtain variables, if you will, come to the forefront because now, you know, as we end the Fed easing, uh, Fed tightening cycle, and now that the market has moved up its, its, you know, easing forecast for in 2024, meaning it's gone from, you know, say negative 125 to, I think this morning, around negative 70 basis points of easing, those other variables such as quantitative tightening and supply have now moved up to the forefront, even though they've existed for several months. So now people are paying attention to that. Obviously, the U.S. has a very large deficit, given all the funding that was given, you know, in this post-pandemic paradigm, both the fiscal and monetary. So we have a lot of supply coming to the marketplace. We also have the Fed continuing with quantitative tightening. And we've had a little bit of catch-a-knife scenario in the rates market where, 
given that the expectation was particularly on the, the real money or institutional money side, that a recession or at least a slowing would occur quicker than what, the, than what we've seen in the marketplace, people are already net long. So you have everyone kind of stepping back and just watching this market, and therefore liquidity in the Treasury market has not been very robust. So it's sort of this catch-a-falling-knife scenario, and that's really pushed the reasons why those variables, why we've moved from a 372 in mid-July all the way up near a 490, you know, a week and a half ago in such a short period of time. So, Leslie, that was very helpful explaining to our listeners, our clients, how we got to where we are today, so to speak. So to expand a bit on your rate outlook, what can you share with us there? As you mentioned, we have a key Fed meeting coming up in November. What are your expectations? Well, what's interesting about this, Dan, which will probably lead to the heightened volatility that we've seen in the rates market, the day that we have the Fed on the 1st, we also get the uh, refunding announcements. And what that is, is that it's the projection of what supply will look like probably in 2024. And right now, the market is looking for about a trillion in coupon supply, right? But what we're seeing in terms of the Fed, I mean, right now, our expectation is that um, – it's probably, honestly, it's a 50-50 whether or not they go one more time in November and December. The market is putting a much lower probability to that. But, you know, at the end, you cannot rule it out because they gave, they left the door open and gave the possibility that there is one more hike to come. Now, when it comes to the actual impact of another 25 basis point rate hike to the consumer or interest rates, it's really not material. But, you know, what the market is looking for is some sort of inclination that that pause is coming, and that's what the market is really expecting, that, you know, whether it is a, we've seen interest rates rise in a very dramatic fashion, and in turn, financial conditions have tightened, so, you know, the market has done some of the heavy lifting for us, therefore, we're going to step back and, you know, kind of give an indication of a long-term pause, and really start to look at inflation, and to see whether or not whether it's, you know, the, what's happening in the Middle East pushes oil prices, you know, up to 100 sustainably, whether this home price appreciation that we've been seeing because of the supply-demand imbalances, you know, pushes home prices up sustainably. All of these could fuel a reignition of, of inflation. I think in that what the Fed is really going to be watch, watching out for. And that's a key to really what the market believes as well, because our fourth quarter outlook is, is that you're going to take sort of that third quarter growth that we've seen from the consumer um, and sort of take it from the fourth quarter. So our, our expectation is is that as, as interest rates rise and you face these, you know, higher borrowing costs, higher cost of capital, that, you know, the, the fourth quarter growth should slow and you should also have the Fed on pause. Now, when you put the, those two combinations together, you should have yields declining, and our expectation is that yields will fall into the fourth quarter. But unfortunately, this is a show-me market. The market needs to see the data that shows the economy slowing. And if it's not going to be in the fourth quarter, these headwinds to rising interest rates, particularly at the levels that we are at now, combined with the lagged impact of a Fed hiking cycle, should lead to yields declining in 2024. But again, we really have to take a step back and look for the data. And frankly, when we think about the, the November 1st Fed meeting, am I, you know, and, and I, as they've dictated, I don't think they truly know. I mean, a lot of this data, as we've seen through, say, the non-farm payrolls, has consistently printed above economic expectation. So it's a very difficult in this cloudiness of this post-pandemic era to really forecast 
these economic numbers accurately. And I think that's also leading to why interest rates are rising. So we look forward to the Fed to probably be a little bit more dovish this time around. Um, but again, we have to wait and see what the data shows. Well, thank you, Leslie, for helping us to manage expectations. To your point, we'll definitely catch up post the Fed meeting in November when we know more. It would be interesting to hear your thoughts, reflections at that point. I want to shift a bit to positioning because the Spotlight article within the monthly fixed income strategist for this month shines light on the outperformance of the high yield market throughout the course of 2023. So, Alina, to set the stage a bit, what factors have contributed to this performance within high yield. Thanks, Dan. Uh, You're right. High yield has been one of the best performing fixed income asset classes year to date. We posted a total return of 5.1% as of yesterday's close. That's year to date. Um, And this is despite giving up some gains um, in September and the first few weeks of October. In fact, uh, September and October to date, we've actually given up about 2% in total return in the high yield market. Um, so we think that this outperformance is attributed to kind of three main factors. First of all, um, as Leslie mentioned, the U.S. economy has turned out stronger than many anticipated, and that led to better corporate earnings and stronger financials for the corporates. Now, secondly, high yield started the year with very robust fundamental factors, And so things like leverage metrics and interest coverage metrics, they actually were very, very healthy. Um, And some of the the healthiest levels that we have seen in recent history. And one of the things that really helped these metrics is that the longer dated debt maturities um, that these corporates had were refinanced at very low coupons during the 2020-2021 very low interest rate era. And that basically insulated the companies from the Fed's interest rate hikes. And so we had very low default rates so far. Now, while most of these factors weakened during this year, the strong starting point essentially meant that companies could maintain financial health despite this rising interest rate environment that we've had. And now, finally, we've also had some technical factors that contributed to the resilience this year. We had pretty low new issuance volumes. We had extremely low new issuance volumes last year in 2022. And while they are up a bit this year, historically speaking, um, actually new issuance this year was still relatively low. It's 30% below where we were in 2019. And then besides that, we also had continued rising stars. And those are companies that were upgraded from high yield to investment grade. So if you look at the high yield market overall, the face value of the high yield index declined to 1.3 trillion from its peak of 1.5 trillion in 2021. And the number of high yield issuers fell from 975 in the beginning of 22 to 913 in August. So this shrinking market, together with some of the stronger fundamental factors, 
really combined to produce a pretty decent return for the asset class so far this year. Alina, with that, as we look ahead, the question, of course, being, will this performance continue? So in consideration, as Leslie pointed out earlier, of the higher for longer rate environment, how do you expect the high yield market to perform through year end? We are neutral on the asset class and high yield. And the reason that we're neutral is because we feel there's this sort of tug of war between several factors in the high yield market. So let's start with the negative side first. Um, on the negative side, as Leslie mentioned, the economy may be slowing going into the fourth quarter and going into the beginning of uh, 2024. Um, we know that consumers are depleting their savings. We know that they have the student loan repayments. And we do have a very high interest rate environment that the longer you hold it, the more likely it is to eventually have an impact on the economy. Now, additionally, we expect that these credit metrics that I just talked about that have been very strong, we do expect them to continue to weaken. And one of the main reasons is that you do have a lot of upcoming refinancing needs for high-yield issuers. We estimate that about 25% of the high-yield index needs to be refinanced through 2026. That is actually a very big number. And we count that the average coupon on the maturing debt is 6.26%. Now, this is compared, of course, with the yield on the high-yield market of 9.2%. So as companies come in and need to refinance this debt, they're interest expense will rise and their interest coverage metrics will continue to weaken. And then, of course, there are going to be some companies that are not going to be able to refinance their debt. And so we expect default rates to continue to rise as well. Now, balancing these factors, right, on the positive side, the credit fundamentals, yes, they're weakening, but they're still quite resilient. And we do expect them to remain above average for the next few years through this refinancing cycle. Of course, this is barring some kind of major recession. And then when you look at yields, we are, I mean, above 9%. We're at 9.2% on the high yield index today. We've been kind of between that 8.5% to 9% for most of this year. That is really high. That is about 78th percentile since 2001. And it does provide attractive carry and a buffer on the downside. So hence our kind of balanced view on the high yield market. Now, I do want to say that while we're balanced on the asset class overall, that does not mean that there are no opportunities in high yield. We actually think that there are quite a bit of opportunities and that investors should look for those a little bit more on the idiosyncratic side, so maybe some single security things. So let me give you an example. Um, we like short-dated high-yield bonds of good quality companies. These bonds now provide a very attractive yield. And um, when you take the yield and you take the strong fundamentals for a lot of those high, higher quality companies, you can earn a very good return um, even if you hold those bonds to maturity. Now, we also like some idiosyncratic opportunities. So let me give you an example on that. Um, we've had, as I mentioned earlier, we've had quite a bit of volatility in the market, and the high-yield market is down about 2% um, over the last six weeks or so. 
And so there are good quality companies, double B rated names that have sold off and that are now providing much better spreads than they were, you know, just about two months ago. And they trade with very attractive yields. So we think that there are opportunities there for investors to begin kind of nibbling at, you know, some of this higher quality paper in the high yield market. Well, Alina, thank you for that explanation in terms of outlook and for sharing with us some background on the allocation view. So before we wrap up, Leslie, can you walk our listeners, our clients through how you're thinking about allocation more broadly speaking within the fixed income asset class? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we've tried to, I mean, there's no question, this this recent move and the velocity of this move was something that we were not anticipating, um, you know, within, not only within fixed income and CIO to actually move fairly quickly, but our, our view remains that as we reach these levels, and, and, and that just, and when I say this, it does not mean particularly when the market is somewhat um, illiquid like it is right now, you can see a 5% 10-year yield. You can see a 508 10-year, uh, but we just don't believe it's going to be sustained because we do think there will be these sort of um, cross-the-tape headwinds you know, when it comes to banks' positions and treasuries and unrealized losses and the, the fact that the mortgage rates you know, going to 8%. All of these will have, over, particularly in 2024, an impact on the consumer and interest rates. So we've, tried, we've had this sort of incremental net long position, and as rates rise, we keep locking in here. And as, as a matter of fact, we looked at um, just yesterday, for example, when the tenure was at say a 471, and if you you know bought just just a a a, a sector with a duration of a seven to ten year and yield just go down 50 basis points, which is not even anywhere that we were back in July, you could you could earn an eight nine percent return. And the reason is it's probably because of what Elena was talking about earlier is that you have a lot of not only do you have you know compounding income. But we also today, given these rate levels, have the potential of price appreciation. Now, when we go back to earlier in the year when we were sitting at a 3.5% tenure yield, compared to what the Treasury was two years earlier, that income looked very attractive, but we didn't think you'd get a lot of price return. Now you're going to have both, particularly as we sort of move up towards that you know, 5% level, 490 level. So our positioning has been that we you know, like sectors. We still like that barbell. The short end in terms of investment grade corporates, locking in that seven to ten year. We look real yields here in terms of the tips market because we do think the economy slows in 2024 and these rising real yields will be end up being restrictive to the consumer and corporations. We also like the agency MBS market, which, you know, the volatility within the treasury market has been a very large headwind to agency mortgage backed securities. But again, this is a high quality AAA asset class that has a yield, right, and a spread that's greater than what you're seeing in triple B corporates. I mean, the corporate market has done better than agency NBS because the corporates are have they don't have as much interest rate exposure to interest rate volatility, and they have a higher correlation to the equity market. But we think as things slow, the higher quality such as agency NBS will continue to to outperform. We're also taking our credit. We've also taken our credit exposure on the preferred side. You know, recently preferreds have faced some some performance headwinds because of the volatility in interest rates, and also because partly of that concern of 
these you know, smaller regional banks may be facing some headwinds going forward given the level of interest rates. But we think that carry, you know, overall will really be a drive to total return. So we, in the fixed income side, we actually have a lot of positions on. You know, mostly it's going to be up in quality. Mostly it's going to be a little locking in longer um, in terms of your interest rate outlook. But we do have that position in terms of a preferred and preferreds. And as Alina mentioned, I mean, although we're neutral high yields, there's definitely a lot of relative value to be played within that sector. Well, Leslie, Alina, very productive session. So thank you for dropping by top of the morning today to keep our listeners, our clients informed on your thinking when it comes to the rate environment, as well as positioning within the fixed income asset class. A lot here to follow up on. So looking forward to future conversations. So thank you both again for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Again, I do want to point our listeners, our clients to the publication, which Leslie and Alina have been making reference to today, uh, that being the latest fixed income strategist looking for high yield is available now up on UBS.com slash CIO. If you are a client of UBS, simply reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the Fixed Income Strategist publication directly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 